I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, August 21st, 2012. Coming up, a public health expert discusses the recent FDA partial ban on the use of an estrogen-mimicking chemical called BPA, or bisphenol A. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Here's a rare bit of positive, if ironic, news for the planet. Carbon dioxide emissions in the U.S. have plummeted to their lowest level in two decades. That's mostly because of the dramatic shift to natural gas away from coal as a fuel for generating electricity. Natural gas-fired power plants emit about half the CO2 emissions of coal plants. Coal plants also produce more than 90 times as much sulfur dioxide and five times as much nitrogen oxide as plants that burn natural gas. Sulfur dioxide causes acid rain and nitrogen oxide leads to smog. The economic slump and an increase in renewable energy account for some of the drop in CO2 emissions, but the substitution of gas for coal accounts for the lion's share. Right now, the giant Marcellus shale and deposits elsewhere, including here in Colorado, are being prodigiously pumped, thanks largely to a con- controversial technology called hydraulic fracking, by which huge amounts of water are pumped at high pressure along with chemicals and sand to pry apart sh- shale rock and release the gas. The production boom has caused natural gas prices to plunge to where it is competitive with coal. The CO2 data were published by the U.S. Inf- Energy Information Administration in its July 2012 monthly energy review. We'll link to our website to an Associated Press article that was published on the topic last week. If you're stressed over clutter in your house, be glad you're not among those trying to figure out how to stop clutter in space from getting out of hand. Space clutter is not just annoying, it can be deadly to valuable working satellites. But there may be a solution on the horizon. Paolo Lozano, a professor of aeronautics and astronautics at MIT, has designed a penny-sized rocket thruster that may soon power tiny satellites in space. The device, unlike huge rocket engines, is a flat, compact square, much like a computer chip covered with 500 microscopic tips. When stimulated with voltage, the tips emit tiny beams of ions. Together, the array of spiky tips creates a small puff of charged particles that can help propel a nanosatellite forward. Lorenzo's microthruster could propel small satellites and potentially solve the problem of space junk by pushing the trash down to lower orbits where it would eventually burn up in the atmosphere. Traditional propulsion systems have proved too bulky for nanosatellites. In contrast, Lozano's microthruster design design adds little to a satellite overall weight. Lozano and his group in MIT's Space Propulsion Lab and Microsystems Technology Lab presented their new thruster array at the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics recent Jet Propulsion Conference. This report was adapted from an MIT news release. Troglaraptor, cave grabber. That's the name given to a new spider found in grottos in southwestern Oregon and in the darkness under the California redwoods. Troglaraptor is brown and big, about an inch and a half from leg to leg, and it has large claws. 
The claws and other features, such as differences in female genitalia, have prompted scientists to place this beast in a whole new family of spiders, Trogloraptoridae. Cave grabber has primitive physiology and may be a relic. Relics are species, rare now, but once widespread, that survived from a time when the environment was very different. If so, they'll have plenty of company from the Pacific Northwest, like the coast redwood, mountain beaver, tiny millipedes in the Olympic Mountains, and pseudoscorpions. Citizen science, scientists from the Western Cave Conservancy first discovered Trogloraptor. Then the species was discovered in the redwoods by researchers from San Diego State University. Descriptive and taxonomic work was done by a team from the California Academy of Scientists. Their work was published last week in the journal Zoo Keys. This Friday and Saturday, the National Geographic Society and the National Park Service are hosting a BioBlitz and Biodiversity Festival at Rocky Mountain National Park. For 24 hours, you can join researchers from all over the country to try to count all the species in the park. Maybe one of those little troglo-raptors. This year, bugs are the featured creatures. At the Biodiversity Festival, there'll be music, photography, workshops, science, demos, food, art, and more. You don't have to register. Get details by Googling National Geographic and Rocky Mountain National Park. We Coloradans pride ourselves on our healthy habits, eating right, exercising, and paying attention to what's in the food we eat. Yet many of the things we use every day, like water bottles, sunscreens, makeup, and, okay, soda cans, are full of toxic chemicals. Many of them are untested and may be insidiously making us sick. One of the more controversial compounds is BPA, or bisphenol A, which is used to make some hard plastic bottles and other food packaging. It's the topic of today's feature, and it was inspired by you. That is, earlier this month, we had on the show the co-owner of a Lamont company that makes metal beer cans. Some of you were surprised and disturbed to learn from him that BPA goes into the beer can liners. So today we have with us public health expert David, Dr. David Dowsey to talk about BPA, bisphenol A, and other environmental toxins. He directs the Mercyhurst Institute for Public Health in Pennsylvania, and he's a professor at Carnegie Mellon. Thanks for joining us today on How on Earth, David. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Two years ago, David, uh, Canada became the first country to declare BPA a toxic substance, and soon thereafter, Canada and the European Union banned BPA use in baby bottles. And just last month, the U.S. government followed suit by banning BPA in children's drinking cups. Uh, is this a good thing, or was it a little too late? Um, it, certainly, it's a it's a, it's a narrow public health victory, and I say it's a narrow public health victory because the industry had already removed BPA from the baby bottles and the sippy cups uh, that were in question, and so um, it was no longer industry practice to include BPA in these things, and so the FDA ban is somewhat hollow, and uh, it seems to be a day late and a dollar short in my mind. Well, let's, uh, let's backtrack just a little and talk about exactly what BPA is a chemical and what it does to our bodies. Uh, describe to us uh, uh, BPA and uh, its influence as an endocrine disruptor. Sure. 
so BPA is a poly, uh, it's used to make polycarbonate and epoxin resins. Um, it's used in a lot of different cans, uh, you know, a, a large number of cans that are used in the U.S., for example, canned soup, um, canned beer, as you said. Other things will have uh, BPA in it. Uh, oftentimes, bottles will have BPA in them. Uh, the receipts that you get at the grocery store, you know, you don't realize this, but you're touching, um, and they've got BPA on it, BPA on it and you're getting BPA exposure. Um, BPA is uh, an endocrine disruptor as well as it's been described as um, uh, an estrogen mimicker. And what that means is that it mimics estrogen. And so uh, one of the concerns we have with BPA is the fact that it does mimic estrogen. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does that exposure mean from a public health standpoint? And what might that mean for the health of our children and our families? And uh, how, how should we address that from a public health standpoint? Uh, you know, BBA has been found uh, by some studies to cause cancer, birth defects, developmental problems. Uh, yet, it's a uh, there's a lot of contention around the science of BPA. Uh, describe uh, the studies that uh, that indict BPA, and what's the latest science? Sure. Uh, one of the things that uh, is challenging is right now the state of the law in the U.S is that we, the chemical industry and manufacturers do not have to prove a product is safe before it is brought to market. And so that uh, answers a question that some listeners might have about why is it that we're talking about this after the fact and not before the fact. If we look at the science, uh, with BPA, it's definitely growing, and we're getting there's a growing indictment uh, against BPA um, and it's some of its potentially harmful health effects. Just this week, there was a study published uh, looking at BPA in coronary artery disease where they found an increased risk amongst uh, individuals that had higher levels of BPA in their urine compared to those uh, individuals with lower levels of BPA in their urine. Um, we have seen a number of studies that have been suggestive of all different types of health effects from uh, BPA exposure, including health effects related to diabetes, liver enzyme abnormalities, et cetera. And, and many of these are recent studies, and these are studies that are um, uh, the science involved in the studies is increasingly strong. And so as we move forward, we have to look at the, the available evidence and say, at what point do we say that the evidence is enough, that it's strong enough to do an outright ban of BPA in consumer products? Some people, myself included, believe that the evidence is there enough because I believe in a safety principle, which is that if we have at least some data to suggest that there's harmful effects in humans, we should cease and desist until um, we know more. Um, and I think, in my personal opinion, I believe we're there with BPA. What, what do you think is a reasonable level of risk uh, for these very complex uh, chemicals? That's a challenging question because what happens is everybody's level of risk is different because everyone consumes a different amount of products that contain BPA. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is the appropriate level of risk that, you know, we need to consider for an average user of plastics and canned products, et cetera. So some people are going to have much lower exposures on average, and other people will have much higher levels of exposure. So it's very difficult for us to say what level of, you know, BPA exposure is okay. Certainly, um, we have to think more about this as a society, but I really don't know, and this is one of the reasons why I think that an outright ban of BPA may be, uh, may be useful, because we really don't know at what level 
um, people are being exposed and at what level we should be concerned. And is it uh, an accumulative effect or is BPA washed right out of the body? BPA can be cumulative. And so, uh, what, for example, there was a study recently that looked at canned soup consumption, and this was in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, it was based on a small sample size, but what they did was they gave people canned soup every single day for five days. And what they found was that there was a thousand, more than a thousand actually, more than a thousand percent increase in urinary BPA. This was much, much higher than we had originally hypothesized, and this was the, the first study to really quantify BPA level in humans after the ingestion of uh, food from canned products. So as we, as we move forward here, we, we know that um, the exposure may be higher than we have originally thought. You know, uh, again, uh, we, in uh, 2011, the head of U the UK's Food Standards Agency said that there were many independent studies that showed that BPA isn't a health concern, and that's very recent. Uh, and uh, from a very authoritative source, this must be very, very confusing for consumers. It is. It's very challenging for consumers because what happens is there are disputes about the study designs. There are disputes about what the study actually found. There are different levels of um, significance across the different studies. Um, studies. Some studies will find that certain um, exposures or certain levels of BPA are significantly associated with a disease or a condition. Others will find different findings. Um, and, and part of it is that uh, we're doing this backwards. We should, be, we should have done this research prior to putting BPA into products. We could have done, you know, light, nice longitudinal research where we looked at BPA exposure and tested it. Now, instead, what we're doing is we're doing this after the fact, after BPA has been mass-marked marketed in tons of products, and it's, um, it's very difficult to conduct the research, right, because um, one of the things is there's ethical concerns anytime you conduct research where you're saying, geez, this is a chemical that we think might be harmful to human beings. Um, we're going to let uh, one group consume it and another group not consume it. So it becomes very challenging at this point now to conduct the science and to do the research uh, to determine the health effects of BPA, but there are certainly um, a growing number of uh, medical research articles that are scientifically strong and rigorous that are finding um, associations between BPA and a whole slew of health outcomes, and a number of these coming out of a Harvard uh, School of Public Health. So given the safety principle, we should uh, ban the use of BPA in consumer products where is the industry going to turn? What are their challenges? And I mean the canning industry. And what, what alternative chemicals can they use? Well, so, so I think the, the canning industry is sort of up against a rock and a hard place because uh, an alternative chemical that they might use might end up being uh, the same or worse than BPA. And, uh, you know, they, they are currently using BPA in a large number of products, and so changing production or changing gears uh, in their mind based on the evidence that is available is, is simply not worth it. Um, and in addition to that, uh, you know, they're worried that, you know, the, the, the next shoe is going to drop and that someone's going to say, oh, no, it's, it's this chemical now. And so 
as we go through here, this is one of the reasons why I've argued that we need revised federal toxic chemical legislation in the U.S. to address this, to, uh, to actually help these uh, manufacturers um, to, to make it so that they don't have, they're not in a situation where they've mass-produced products that now might have potential health consequences. And so there is a revised law that was just um, passed by a committee in the Senate um, called the Safe Chemicals Act, and that is going to be voted for uh, by the full Senate. Um, and one of the things we hope that comes out of that is that there are uh, revised chemical laws that basically make it so that the burden of proof is reversed here. We're talking with David Dowsey about BPA and other compounds that can be harmful to humans and the environment. You're listening to KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Jim Pullen. Uh, you know, we'd like to open the lines now for our listeners. If you'd like to ask David Dowsey a question about BPA and environmental toxins, call our studio at 303-442-4242. 303-442-4242. David, let's turn our attention now to other human-made toxic chemicals in the environment. What are the ones we should know about that industry and the government are not telling us about? Well, there, there's two in particular that are of concern to me uh, in the, as a public health expert. One are the idea, uh, one are perfluorinated chemicals. These are the things that are used in stain and nonstick uh, chemicals and, uh, uh, and includes uh, Teflon chemicals and other things that are used on nonstick products. And the others are uh, polybrominated biphenyls and polybrominated diphenyl ethers. And these are flame retardants. And there was actually uh, a recent and very good um, uh, Chicago Tribune investigation of polybrominated diphenyl ethers, or PBDEs, um, where they looked into how we ended up with so many flame-resistant products in the market um, and uh, looked at the exposure of human beings to flame-resistant uh, pro products, etc. But what we know, for example, with the uh, perfluorinated chemicals, or PFCs, is that they are... Um, they're in our environment uh, everywhere, and that they uh, they tend to be with us for long periods of time, and so we can actually measure levels of the blood of our exposures to these chemicals and find that um, children and adults alike are have very, very high levels of these uh, chemicals in our, our blood. And the Chicago Tribune investigation started out with the headline that basically um, most Americans are born with uh, 10 fingers, 10 toes, and uh, the highest levels of polybrominated uh, uh, diphenyl ethers um, in our blood than any other country in the world. David, um, we, we have just lit the board up here with questions. Let's go ahead and take sure, uh, sure. some questions. Uh, we'd like to take Joan's question. Go ahead, Joan. Yes, uh, good morning. Um, my question has to do with um, uh, BPA leaching into uh, children's toys, babies' toys. And there are a lot of um, toys around that people buy at... Um, um, you know, uh, uh, garage sales and that kind of thing. And so my question is, is that can, this, can the BPA leach into the child's mouth from them mouthing these plastic items? Is it that, is, is it that easily um, uh, leached? I thank, don't know what other word to use. Thank you, Joan. Uh, and, great I'll, question. and I'll get off the air. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Great question, um, and, and thank you for asking that. Um, there's limited evidence and data on that. Typically, one of the ways that BPA leaches is by having um, a uh, is by having uh, you know uh, heat applied to it. So this is one of the reasons why it was such a concern in baby bottles. 
was the fact that we had this um, this issue where you're you're heating up the plastic and then uh, it's expressed into the uh, the water or the, the whatever um, substance you've got in in the bottle. Thanks a lot. Now we have uh, Laura on the line. Go ahead, Laura. Yes, I had to call in. Uh, this is the best conversation I've heard in a long time. And um, I was always real careful about keeping PVC out of my baby's mouth. My family told me I was crazy. That was 14 years ago before they did it. Uh, threw out all my Teflon pans and um, tried to stay away from BPA, although I feel like it's insidious and it's in a lot of places I don't realize it. Now, what the most compelling thing that you guys said was that the burden of proof needs to be changed. And it seems like for my whole life, I've seen dangerous chemicals released before they're tested enough. And how, what can a citizen like myself do to join the fight, to, to get the burden of proof in the right place and have these chemicals tested well enough before they're released to manufacturers and consumers? Thank you, Laura. Go ahead, Dan. Thank you. So uh, but there are a number of groups right now that are working very hard on this issue. One of them is Women for a Healthy Environment. Um, another is Safer Chemicals, Healthy Families. Um, and uh, they are working, um, uh, lobbying Congress and others to get safer chemical legislation passed. And I certainly think that um, involving in a, one of those groups or, you know, sort of joining one of the grassroots organizations that is uh, grappling with these issues is one of the ways that you can get involved in to try to make it so that uh, we do have uh, better toxic chemical legislation in the U.S. Thanks a lot, David. Now we have Gene on the line. Go ahead, Gene. Okay. Um, what uh, Canadian products and European products use if uh, it was banned in those countries? Uh, what do they use over there? And also, if uh, this uh, chemical is eliminated by urine, uh, uh, isn't that uh, a good thing that's eliminated? How much is left in the body uh, after, you know, the kidneys are processing, uh, you know, these substances? Thank you, Gene. So, so let me answer the question about um, the other countries, Canada, Europe, et cetera. So they just did the same thing we did just sooner than we did, which is they banned it in baby bottles and sippy cups, et cetera. So um, the, the BPA is still found in uh, many of their canned products, plastic goods, food packaging, et cetera. And so the exposure um, in, in, in other places outside of the U.S. is, is similar. Um, regarding how much of BPA is left in your blood, uh, we don't actually know exactly because, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Harvard study that was done on only 75 individuals looking at the, um, the canned food, um, that was actually one of the first studies to sort of measure and look at BPA exposure and how much we're getting exposed to. So we need more data on um, human exposure to BPA, um, how much exposure we actually have and how much is in our systems at any one time. Thanks, David. We have uh, time for one more caller. Uh, Barbara, go ahead, and, and we have about 30 seconds for your comment or question. Hi, I just had a follow-up question. Uh, you mentioned receipts at the store. You said that um, have the BPA. Can you expand on that a little bit, please? Sure, sure. Is that, is that phthalate, phthalates or, or BPA, David? B uh, so BPA can be found on the, the receipts in the stores. So 
um, they uh, they are actually um, you, the the chemical that's used on the receipt can actually uh, be be found on the be found on the uh, the receipts themselves. Just holding the receipt in your hand transfers about 2.5 micrograms of BPA to your skin. Crumpling the receipt will give you about 15 times that amount of transfer. And so um, that's just one example of BPA being in consumer products that we are unaware of, right? So most people wouldn't realize that. And what we find with these chemicals is they end up creeping in everywhere. Uh, once they are starting, once they are used in consumer products, we find them omnipresent. And that's uh, the case with BPA um, on being on uh, consumer receipts. Well, we won't be able to get to Mary's uh, question tonight, t- today, uh, Mary's call. But thanks to everybody for calling in, and thanks to Dr. David Dowsey from the Mercyhurst Institute of Public Health in Pennsylvania. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Our executive producer is Susan Moran, and this week's show was produced by me, Jim Pullen. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen.